this tour that you're currently on, it's a tribute to the Beatles albums Rubber Soul and Revolver. And it's sort of a sequel to a series of shows you had done uh, some time ago. And you're joined by Christopher Cross, Jason Sheff of Chicago, Joey Molland of Badfinger, Denny Lane of Wings and uh, the Moody Blues. You'll be performing in our area June 8th at the Count Basie Center for the Arts in Red Bank, Sony Hall in New York City on June 12th, June 18th at Westbury, and uh, other dates up and down the East Coast. It's a big, big tour. Uh, tell us a little bit about this particular uh, show and, and the focus on these two albums. Well, we've, as you have mentioned, we've done this uh, Beatle tribute thing before. Last time we did the White Album, and they usually tended to be, you know, a reproduction of a classic Beatle record like Sgt. Pepper or um, Abbey Road or the White Album. When they was fam, I'm Ed Chen, and I'm John Stone. Uh, guesting with us as promised, Darren Murphy. Hey, Darren. Hey, you guys. How's it going? Very good. We're enjoying Revolver Land, or getting ready to enjoy Revolver Land. It's so exciting, isn't it? They're going to give us this every year. You know, we we were just waiting for the Get Back to be released. It's only weeks away. It's weeks away, and now a year later, we're dying for Revolver. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I I was on Twitter. And somebody was writing this tweet about not a second time. And they were saying, this is the first Beatles track that George Harrison doesn't play guitar on. And, and I was like, oh, wait a second there. there. George actually does play electric guitar on this track. There's a little subtle rhythm hook that's in there. It's just, it's really hard to hear unless you pan all the way over to the left. But as soon as Giles Martin gets hold of it in a few years, <laughs> everyone will be able to hear it. Or uh, Peter Jackson, because he performs the magic. pretty good commercial demixing technology but what he has managed to accomplish here is just absolutely amazing i, I like giles's description of it is you give him a cake and an hour later he gives you back 
eggs, milk, and flour and sugar with no trace of cake batter anywhere on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really is interesting to hear how far down the rabbit hole one can actually go with these tracks. I didn't expect stereo drums on any record before 1969. So, wow. There's been criticism because it's not exactly what it was necessarily, but I just find that nonsense. <laughs> it, it sounds so good. Yeah, um, exactly. It, nothing has been changed. The music was recorded. Uh, it was performed as it was performed. The, yeah, they didn't get Bernard Purdy to come in and do anything. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> really, the big difference is how the music is going to be heard generations from now. And I think that's ultimately what Giles Martin and Sam O'Kell have in mind is they want this music to continue to sound contemporary for the next generations to hear it. They're used to hearing music differently and to hear the Beatles music performed as it was performed, but to actually be able to hear all the performances very, very clearly is something different. And, you know, our antiquated ears are always going to compare what is with what was, but the new kids are going to hear it and go, wow. It makes it so that the music doesn't sound old. You know, you hear the record and I mean, you hear records from the sixties and they sound old, mm -hmm. but the music now, the Beatles music sounds very modern. Children and grandchildren are told about this album. You don't want it to come on the, uh, you know, to, to come on a streaming service or a radio channel and sound old, even though we use modern techniques, you know, we still using the old equipment. And so there's that, that's the kind of drive. Well, I mean, Revolver in particular, you know, you look at Pepper, Pepper is very much of a time and a place. Revolver, that could have been recorded yesterday. Rain is the entire template for Oasis. Oh, <laughs> yeah, in, in every way that you can think of, you know, visually as well, for Oasis and the Jam. We'll get back to Revolver. We had uh, Stephen Doster and Randy Miller with us a couple weeks ago both of which had some really nice things to say about you and your participation in the uh, annual Lennon show, the number nine orchestra. I was wondering whether you had any comments back. Oh yeah. As John knows, you know, Randy and John and I have a history that goes back of at least 30 years. And, you know, yeah. I, I used to see Randy Miller when he played in Zen Archer, they were playing at a club called R and R that I was DJing at. I knew him at least from that period in the late eighties. Uh, and then he produced the very first album that my sister and I made. And then just a few years later, I found myself in Austin watching Stephen Doster in my first Stephen Doster experience was a springtime Beatles show that he did. And then I found out that he and this number nine orchestra did the John Lennon thing every single year. So I was like, well, this is obviously a guy that I need to get to know. And so I introduced myself and, you know, we uh, kind of took a liking to each other very quickly. And so I'm really glad that those two forces, you know, Randy and Stephen eventually found each other. On a professional level, Randy is such a talented recording engineer and producer, and so is Stephen Doster. So they have those qualities in common. They have the love for music in common. So I'm excited for the idea of the three of us playing an entire show together for the first time. You both weren't part of it three years ago in 2019? 2017 or 2018, 
was the last time I played drums all the way through one of these shows that we did at Threadgills. And Randy came in and played on a song or two, and Steve Wilson as well. But this is the first time that Randy and I have done an entire gig together as a rhythm section. I don't think that's ever happened before. And I just love Randy's bass playing, and I love his vibe yeah. too. It's just going to be a lot of fun. And that is October the 9th on John's birthday. Yeah, imagine that. And we managed to get a really good venue, too. The 310 ACL Live is a place that most Austin musicians really love to play because of uh, their production value, and the, the video screen, and it just it, the location. Everything about it is terrific. Uh, you just played there with Skyrocket. Yeah, yeah, just a few weeks ago. And there are two stages. There's, there's a big stage and a small stage, and you're playing on the big stage. The big stage is what they call ACL Live at the Moody Theater, and it's on the second floor. It's all kind of built into this big W hotel. And so the Moody Theater is where they have more major touring acts come through. Ringo Starr came and played there, and they also tape Austin City Limits there. And on on street level, is more of a nightclub kind of thing. It's what they call the 310 ACL Live. Because it's actually, the address is, is 310 West 2nd Street. And it's got a little the garage doors that open up. It's much more accessible than the Moody Theater is. You, know, you have to have your tickets and you go up and you have to go up the flight of stairs. And stuff. So 310, you just kind of show up and, and wander you, in. <laughs> wander in. <laughs> Yeah. When was Ringo last in Austin? Was that 2017? 2017. Halloween night, 2017. <laughs> Any reason they're dressed up tonight? Well, because... I knew something was missing. It's Halloween, everybody! he was here like the day after the Astros won the World Series. Yeah, and he was in Austin the day before. Okay. <laughs> uh, and Ringo is back out on the road now. I saw him on Jimmy Kimmel the other night. He's great. <laughs> he's such a great interview and he's such a smart ass. Who was the most fun stoned of the four of you? How would I know? <laughs> <laughs> You're about to get the all-star band back together. You oh, thank you, Lord. I mean... Yeah, thank you. In uh, May, uh, you're going on tour. I mean, the last two years, I, you know, I had four tours set up and we didn't make any of them because of the pandemic. And he's 82. You wouldn't know it, though. Yeah, there's no signs of dementia coming out of that. Other than, <laughs> I can't remember. I have no idea. I was too <laughs> stoned to remember. <laughs> yeah, it's an easy answer for him. Yeah. <laughs> and how does that go? <laughs> the other thing that we're here to talk about is you were on the road with Todd Rundgren and the surprise, surprise, Rubber Soul Revolver Anniversary Tour. With the White Album, you got your tour just after the box. Now, with this one, you get it just before the box. Yeah, that's right. And this one was rather unexpected because I think all of us in the entourage were expecting to do the White Album again because that's what we knew. And then the next time I heard about it, it was going to be Rubber Soul Revolver. And I was like, oh, this is great. And I 
originally thought that I was not going to be on the tour because they had chosen another drummer. They had chosen Prairie Prince, which made sense to me because he's Todd Rundgren's go-to guy. Yeah. Um, and then Christopher Cross, God bless him, he stepped in and said, you know, you, you, we can have Prairie, but we can't do this tour without Darren. He's one of the few guys that knows all this music and he's going to be a, a good anchor for us. So uh, let's call him and find out what he can do. So I said, well, I, I play some guitar and I play some percussion and enough keyboards to get myself in trouble and I can sing. So if you need help organizing the harmony parts and I can do that for you. So they chose Todd's guitar player, Jesse Gress, as the music director and I was assisting Jesse and just keeping the set list organized and helping delegate responsibilities among the musicians. And then five days before rehearsals began, he called me and said, my health has taken a, a turn for the worse and I'm too sick to travel. You're going to be the music director. <laughs> and we're getting Wayne Avers from the White Album Tour to come in and play guitar. And I was like, oh, Jesus. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was a, a pretty big behemoth challenge to undertake. I was already sort of performing the duties of music director, but to actually have to get into the rehearsal room with these guys, with these really strong personalities and tell them what to do was a, a daunting task, but it turned out really well. The core band, Wayne Avers and Gil Aseas on keyboards, and of course, Prairie Prince, they were golden. And by the way, John Prairie played me some outtakes from the Skylarking sessions that just blew oh, my really? mind. Yeah, that was really uh, XTC. Yeah, <laughs> I guess he had some early stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Anyway, this time instead of Mickey Dolan's, whom we had on the White Album tour, we had Denny Lane and Joey Mullen from Badfinger came back, and Jason Chef from Chicago came back to play bass. Jason is a very strong vocalist, so he was able to handle all of the McCartney high-pitched stuff. Todd Rundgren got the meaty, gritty John Lennon stuff. And then Christopher Cross got most of the sort of soft McCartney, Eleanor Rigby here, there, and everywhere for no one. Joey Mullen, I thought he'd be perfect to sing you know, George songs. Uh, I, I really wanted him to sing Think for Yourself, but we didn't get to do that one. But uh, I had him come in and do If I Needed Someone, and he got to sing Dr. Robert, which he said, I'm really glad to sing that one. That's one of my favorite fucking Beatles songs. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and then Denny Lane came in and did stuff like Nowhere Man and I uh, Want to Tell You. A couple of times he got to sing uh, I'm Only Sleeping. Yeah, it turned out to be a pretty well-distributed show. Several people came up and said, wow, this is just one of the best live concerts that I've seen anywhere by anyone. And so that was a bit vindicating for me. I was like, okay, all right, good. We, we did a good job. It was a really strong show. I, I did get to see it here. Uh, I tried to, to come and find you afterwards, but you guys left like immediately or fairly immediately uh, a lot of people that were on the bus they left that night actually i went just down the street to a bar to meet with my sister and some friends but i i'm sorry i didn't get to say hello to you ed no no worries the thing about that show that was amusing to me was that on if i needed someone the verses got mixed up and and you just sort of turned around and glared and it's like <laughs> he was like oh 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 i did something wrong I did. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe it. I was too busy to glare at anyone. 
Joey was, he's such a funny guy. He, he was so sweet, but you know, a lot of the times he, he wasn't quite sure of, of what verse he should be on or, or whatever. So sometimes he'd look back at me with this sort of grin on his face. And Lied. so I just like kind of give him a nod or whatever. It's like, yeah, let's just keep putting on the show. You know, just keep going through it. <laughs> Although I thought band on the run, he should have played one of his own songs other than band on the run. Go and, now. Well, he has to play Go Now. Yeah, and and it, Go Now actually was one of my favorite moments every single night. My favorite moment of the, of the whole show. I love playing on it. I love singing back up on it. But I really just love the energy that Denny put out every night. You could tell that he just felt it and believed in it. And he he didn't believe in Band on the Run so much because it it wasn't a song of his, and and he didn't really want it. Didn't he wanted to sing one of his own Wings tunes? Time to Hide, I think, was the one that he really liked. I told him, I, I said, man, if it were up to me, I'd have you singing again and again and again every night. That's my favorite of your songs. He says, oh, you know that one. Oh, man, I'm really impressed that you know that one. The uh, Spirits of Ancient Egypt. Yeah, yeah, right. But I think that the upper brass who were producing the show really wanted the most familiar material that they could do and. And okay. so he had to kind of go along with that. Or even Mall of Kentire. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he's he still wrote the song after all. He's still getting a penny or two from that one. Yeah. yeah. Is he? Uh, he I thought he sold all of his rights back to Paul. Is that what happened? I have no idea. You probably know better. Paul paid him a pretty penny, but he, I believe he does now own all of the rights to Mall of Kentire. <laughs> I want it all. The scoundrel. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry that Denny had to bow to the corporate bastards. He's a bit cynical, you know, in that way. You know, he, sometimes he'll come off as this sort of a jaded musician. And at other times, he just comes off as a wonderfully passionate music fan. After spending some time with him, I went back and listened to the, the earliest Moody Blues recordings when they were known as the Magnificent Moody's. Right. And... It was very enlightening because, you know, that is the stuff that Denny is really, really loves. You know, he could, he never considered himself a fan of the Beatles as much as he considered himself a contemporary of the Beatles. He didn't have time to be a fan of theirs because he was just busy making his own music. And he loved the blues. He loved R&B. He loved you know, soul music. And his singing reflects that. And so when you see him in, in the, the, the way that he performs on stage now, it's still connected to those earliest days of uh, the Magnificent Moody's. Hmm. Yeah, we're going through the BBC sessions. And while Denny is not on them, we talked about a show that was on, on the same date as uh, one of their Pop Go the Beatles recordings. And so the Beatles were late, and Denny has told the story of them just having to extend their set. This was pre-Moody Blues. This was Denny and the Diplomats, I believe. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I didn't and hear that one. They're in the middle of this rock show, and it's like the management comes out. Well, you're going to have to extend for another 20 minutes. What are you <laughs> going to play? 
And this is what they chose to play. They played having a Gila. <laughs> and then they played a, a Dave Brubeck song. Wow. Which one was that? Take five from Time Out. The idea was the jazz used to challenge the public and make them think in terms more advanced rhythmically than they were used to thinking in. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. Because you know, Denny knows a lot of songs. I'd find there were a couple of nights were on the bus where we would be just on this marathon bus trips. You know, every, everyone who had money would fly. Denny and Joey and I, just the three of us on the bus, and our, our merch guy, the wonderful uh, Jeffrey Kasky. So we had a lot of time to talk about music and pass the guitar around. And there was this great moment where I was watching Denny teaching Joey Mulland how McCartney played Blackbird, because Joey had never known. To, I think Paul was the only Beatle that Joey Mullen never actually met. You know, even though he wrote Come and Get It for them. You know, he, I don't think Joey had joined the band at that stage. Joey and Denny together, those two were a comedy team. They were hilarious. So I'd be trying to sleep and they would be up at, at five in the morning just howling together, uh, solving the problems of the world over several pints, you know. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm getting up in years, and so I always have to ask this question. How old were they? They're both septuagenarians. In, in good health? Uh, relatively good health. Denny is actually in pretty excellent health. Joey has been battling diabetes for quite a while. Um, right. So, you know, his energy level would kind of, you know, rise and fall. But they were all pretty healthy, except for the COVID-19 outbreak that sidelined our tour for several days. Almost everyone on our bus, including me, got sick. And this was just a few shows into the first leg of the tour. So we had to shut down. But once we had all recovered, we all got back out on the road and whatever gigs that we lost during that first leg, we were able to make up again on the second leg, which was much more successful and way more fun. Yeah, the first leg ran, ran what, March to May? Uh, the first one was uh, just in the month of March. March 1st was our first actual gig up in uh, Morristown. No, not Morristown. Um, Montclair, New Jersey. And then we wrapped in Kansas City right there in the, the, uh, the last week of March. And then we took a couple months off. And then uh, back at the end of May, which was when you saw us, Ed, we had just kicked off again. And we, then we, we ran through the end of June. Yeah, that was quite a week. You were Wednesday night and Friday night in Orlando. I went to go see McCartney. Oh, wow. How was that? Have you seen the Glastonbury show? The video? The Glastonbury show? No. Yeah. Yeah. Paul did Glastonbury at the very end of the tour. Wow. Okay. His voice sounds a lot better, actually. Okay, that's good. While it's not prime McCartney, it sounds better than it has in a number of years. I think during COVID, he actually acceded to getting in a voice coach. There are a lot of sort of little tricks, and he's sort of not holding on to notes quite as long. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he doesn't crack. Yeah, I, I can only imagine, you know, how much of your ego you have to swallow if you're Paul McCartney, who's never had a vocal lesson in your life. And suddenly you go, oh, I guess I better, uh, you, know, you know, get my voice in shape. Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned Mickey Dolan's and Mickey Dolan's credits his vocal coach. 
Yeah. I mean, he sounds amazing. He does. He still has it. I think Mickey is like 77 now, and he's out on the road as we speak as the uh, the lone monkey. I bought his record of him doing Mike Nesbitt songs, and it's it's really good. So he's in great voice. Oh, that's cool. If you don't have it, you should get the Monkees Christmas album. It's pretty good. It has some familiar names associated with it. Adam Schlesinger does a lot of work on it. There's a Andy Partridge does some work on it. And all four of the Monkees get a lead vocal on it. Not all of the recordings are new, you know, some right. other stuff. But yeah, it's a sweet little record. The mood is right. The spirit's up. We're here tonight. And that's enough. Cool. Just out of curiosity, was it management who had Joey credited as Badfinger featuring Joey Molland? I thought that was a little bit strange. Yes. I think that they were, you know, just their businessmen. They wanted to sell tickets. And there are more people who know who Badfinger is than they know who Joey Molland is, you know. So strangely enough, they didn't say Chicago featuring Jason Chef. Chicago is trademarked outside. Yeah, right. Uh, But, you know, Joey didn't seem to to be all that bummed about it. He was happy to be able to get out there every night and sing and happy to, to be on the line meeting folks and signing autographs. And occasionally there'd be somebody that maybe they were with their family or something. They would spot Joey and it's like, you're Joey Mullen, aren't you? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, I've based my whole career around seeing you for the first time. And uh, so, you know, whenever you see somebody like that, especially somebody young uh, that you've influenced, yeah. it always feels really good. So any particular dates amongst the best of the tour? Yeah, I think the Dallas show that we played on our first leg was really happening. I think that was when we really hit our stride and a lot of folks were coming up uh, telling me that that was the best sounding show. That room, the Majestic Theater in Dallas, is a great sounding room. And the crowd really seemed to be into it. That was a good show. The Kansas City show that wrapped up our first leg was pretty wonderful. And then there was a show in the second leg that we did in upstate New York at this outdoor venue that overlooked this vineyard and this lake. And the the view was wonderful. The vibe was wonderful. The music was wonderful. That was just a feel-good gig for everyone concerned. Very cool. So you've been living in Revolver and Rubber Soul Land for quite a while. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, after you've done a show like that, you know, you would think, oh, I'd be happy never to hear this music again. But those two albums are so timeless and so sonically delicious and satisfying, not to mention the songwriting and the performances that... I can't help but crank it 
whenever I hear it, whenever it comes on. And so, you know, to find out that this Revolver album, which we all love so much, is being remixed and, and represented is nothing less than exciting for me. We've gotten the Taxman remix, and we've gotten a trailer, which has just a little bit of everything, and then they call, what they call an unboxing video, which has the same little bit of everything, plus uh, here, there, and everywhere. Good day, sunshine, I want her everywhere, and if she's beside me, I know I need never care. What else is on there? Turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. It is not dying, cause I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Ah, look at all the lonely people. You tell me that you've got a thing you want, and your bird there's a home demo as well, right? Just a little snippet of John's home demo of She Said, She Said. And it's making me feel like my now that's something we've heard before. Right. And then there was a, like a little bit of banter. Can you read that? Yeah, I can read it okay now, Paul. Ahead of some song. Was it And Your Bird Can Sing, maybe? Yeah. So we're going to get both versions. We're going to get the laughing version from Anthology 2 and the underlying take that they were giggling on top of. Okay. So they're going to separate the laughter. The laughter was an overdub. Yeah. Okay. It was on a separate track. Yeah. There was a, you guys are familiar with the Purple Chick releases. Do you yeah. know what I'm talking about? Yeah, on the Revolver Deluxe edition they had these things called outfakes. Tracks that were manipulated to sound like they were outtakes. But I think what they did is they just took that track that we all know with the laughing and, and found some way to eliminate the laughing so you could just hear what was on underneath it. They oopsed it, and then they did something, which I'm not sure of. But I know they started with an out-of-phase stereo. Okay. They're blasphemers. <laughs> well, we've been getting those on bootlegs for 40 years. I've been calling for their extinction for a long time. <laughs> Stop manipulating Aren't these remixes really manipulations? Yeah, but the old ones are just messing stuff up. I think we're going through the same thing now with Photoshop. I've seen all sorts of pictures from the 70s with John and Paul together. It's like, this didn't happen. None of this happened. <laughs> I guess your listeners should be aware that the kind of technology that they're using now, the sort of demixing technology, is not exactly brand new. It's just been improved on. They were using some variant of demixing technology for the Beatles rock band. And then yeah. I, I found like these young sort of college age kids are using these crude versions of demixing technology to separate the tracks on some of these Beatles mono recordings. And they've been making fan mixes. I downloaded somewhere like complete alternate Beatles library. I heard not the traditional stereo version of say, if I fell, I heard a fan mix of If I Fell, where I actually heard kick drum for the first time ever. The technology is getting better and better, but Peter Jackson's guys really took it to the most professional level to date, to a degree that Giles Martin finally said, okay, this is something that's good enough for me to use and to build something that's actually releasable. 
that the Beatles themselves can sign off on and say, okay, green light. Well, I mean, that's what he said even as recently as the Abbey Road box was that, well, I want to do Revolver eventually, but I don't know that the technology exists right now. Yeah. The thing that amazes me about that is what it was developed for and get back was to get rid of guitars on top of the Beatles talking, but it wasn't necessarily meant to separate instruments. Right. But as we know, there are two reasons why people do anything. One reason is because they can. And of course, the other reason is to find out if they can. So there you go. You left out money. (laughs) (laughs) One of the comments that Giles Barton makes in the Rolling Stone interview, uh, I thought was real interesting. And he compared as he goes backwards in the Beatles canon that it gets smaller and he compared it to French food. You don't need a big plate for French food because it's always three or four small portions. Well, as you go backwards in the Beatles career, what's on the tape gets smaller and smaller in a way. It's like now there's one guitar, one, one bass, maybe two vocals. So how do you make that sound right with the new technology? He talks about how he was surprised he had planned on doing some placement. I think he mentions on Yellow Submarine. But when he did it, the way logically it would be, the song just didn't sound right anymore. And he's trying to reproduce the sound pretty much the way they wanted. But if you moved it too much, then it just kind of messed up the quality. So I think that's what he's talking about in in sounding right. Oh, yeah, sure. Some people still aren't happy with the fact that the guitar is no longer quite so far to the fore on Taxman. Yeah, a lot of that depends on, to me, it depends on the system that you're listening to. You know, because the first time I heard the new mix of Taxman, I heard it in my car. And as the guitars sounded really harsh to me. And then I got home and, and cranked up my studio speakers. And then it sounded, you know, a little better. Um, and then I, I, I have a little surround movie system downstairs and ran it through there and i was like okay i get it there's nothing that's terribly extreme in the way that they used to on a lot of those stereo mixes they did really crank up the the sound that you wanted to hear like if you listen to an old who track you know they'd really pump pete townsend's guitar ridiculously hot and then bring it down so i guess because it's designed for a more contemporary audience that there's going to be a little bit less of that but that's the whole point isn't it so you can hear something that you haven't heard before you can hear something doesn't sound like the old stereo mix or the mono mix yeah i was personally thrilled to hear mccartney's bass track prominent enough to follow it and hear him during the bridge where they talk about when you drive a car his bass playing there is just kind of manic which i'd never heard it had been part of everything for so long that this was the first time i really heard it and he and ringo are just locked together it's a great part and i heard it better than i've ever heard it Yeah, I think we've had the isolations. Taxman was part of the rock band set, wasn't it? Yes. Now, speaking of rock band, a friend of mine 
sent me the other day I, I, a link to again it's sort of in the you know the bootleg series but somebody had taken all of the stuff on revolver from rock band and you can get the stems you know somewhere around that you can still find the stems and they just made fan mixes of taxman yellow submarine and your bird can sing tomorrow never knows isn't really that's just the, the the track off the love album so you don't really get that but you get you know paperback writer and stuff but i guess the thing is that they were able to find not just the stems that were used on rock band but also if you dig deep enough into the game then you get the little bits of studio banter before some of those songs and i can't imagine who has the time to sit there and pick the entire rock band game apart and find every single little bit of studio banter because there's tons of hidden stuff in there hidden gems that actually have to be unlocked so my hat's off to whoever takes the time to do that that was the first commercial release of the first christmas record was in the rock band game you unlocked it and you you got the christmas record Back when that was still something. Oh, wow. Which Christmas record, though? The first one, the 63. Oh, okay. I got it. If you got 100% on bass or something on a certain song, then it would unlock the Christmas record. I never got that far. I still have the game. I just don't have the time. (laughs) You're too busy with the real thing. (laughs) We get as close as we can, don't we? (laughs) We have heard about some of the outtakes. First off, Darren, you were a little disappointed in the... It's not a huge number of outtakes that a significant number were on, on Anthology, too. They seem to be re-releasing a lot of stuff that was already previously released. but And it, it made me wonder, what did they do to make it sound different than what has already come out? What else have they uncovered? We're certainly getting full takes. If you compare the run times that we've been given versus the Anthology 2 run times, they differ by as much as a couple seconds out to about a full minute. Sure. You know, anyone that's had that's got the anthology has heard the very first take of Tomorrow Never Knows, which is reissued again in this new box set. But there's a, apparently but there was a second take. I don't know. I've never heard that version before. If was it just a, an aborted take, something that broke down, so they didn't consider it releasable. I guess we'll never know. Not tomorrow, anyway. Uh, until the 100th anniversary. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I wonder how much work they did on outtakes. And do they do the same work and split them apart? And so that, yeah, you are getting the same take as on the anthology, but you're going to hear it completely different. Mm-hmm. I understand that there's an earlier take of For No One. You find them. One of the earlier takes that just has Paul on piano and Ringo on drums. And the drums are actually up in the mix. You know, previously, we've only heard these sort of bootleg takes from the control room uh, where it's sort of low quality and you're hearing, you know, a second generation version of what's coming out through the what they call the monitor mixes. 
So you're only hearing right. what the engineers heard, but just very poor quality. But if we're hearing that, you know, straight from the source tape, you know, that alone is something to look forward to in my ears. Well, and rain at the actual speed. We've heard it before, and we can generate that if we really want to, you know, go go into our favorite editing software, but to have it from the master. Mm-hmm. This is what they were actually playing at the time. Right. Do, do you think, though, do you think that, that Giles Martin actually took the original tape and played it back as original speed, or did he just use a, a backup on Pro Tools? That's a good question. They did run the tapes again. This is a brand new AAA mix of the mono revolver. So they did a new transfer. This is not the same transfer that we had either from the original tapes to mono or the original tapes to stereo. Okay. And certainly not the analog mono mastering that was done for 2014 box set. Correct. Hmm. Cool. Now, I'm not sure why they did that because that was supposedly the best that could have been done at the time. Uh, I had heard that when the first mono recordings were released digitally, that they just did a flat transfer from the mono mixes. They didn't run it through any queuing or, or any sort of outboard gear on its way. So maybe Giles Martin just found something to run it through to make it sound bigger and fatter so it would be a comparable listen to the remixes. Apple has always liked to give us these little teasers. We got Taxman first. I would expect that we're going to get at least two or three more tracks, certainly one from the outtakes disc, maybe one from the mono disc before the actual release date. But the song in question is Yellow Submarine. We've always thought that, oh, this was Paul's song and only Paul's song. He's certainly given that impression just from his the story that he has told more than once. Where did the first seeds and germ of an idea for Yellow Submarine come. I was lying in bed. You know when you're just drifting off and you've got that sort of five or ten minutes before you actually go, it's a nice little nether world there. I like that. It actually sends me to sleep thinking of songs. It's good. I give yourself a little task. And uh, somehow I got this idea of submarines and sort of children's idea, Yellow Submarine. And there were going to be blue ones and green ones and everything, but it all just came down to this yellow one. I got a very simple. Duh, 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 loo, loo, loo. Having thought about this, well, actually, describe what we're talking about for those who don't know. So, as described in the Rolling Stone article, uh, there's a John Lennon work tape for Yellow Submarine. And it's a slowed down, almost Dylanized or Woody Guthrieized version of the song. I've heard it described by some as almost a proto-plastic ono band. Uh, the lyrics that we have are, In the place where I was born, no one cared, no one cared. And the name that I was born, no one cared, no one cared. Which is certainly not the jolly feel-good yellow submarine. No. Right. No. But that could be like the perfect Lennon-McCartney composition where Paul comes up with a hook you know, as he claims like he was drifting off to sleep and where the weird musical ideas start creeping in. So maybe he had the chorus and then they combined that with something that John was working on that was a little more introspective that became the verses. It will be interesting to hear the tune yeah. that John is singing to. Because the lyric is very similar. I mean, it fits. I felt like I'm going out on a limb here. It could be the tune, but McCartney's like, well, that's not going to fit my happy song mm -hmm. and certainly Ringo's not going to be able to sing that <laughs> right so he kept the tune changed the lyrics we know that Donovan helped with part of the lyric right 
Um, so it, the direction had been changed at some point. So I think, you know, it's possible that the verse tune is maybe Lennon's. Even in the final version, you can sense a little bit of John. I mean, talking about his father in the town where I was born, lived a man who sailed to sea. Well, is he talking about Alf? Yeah. Wow. I'd never thought of that until just now. But wow. How about that? It's the nicer version of what he's singing here. He lived beneath the waves. (laughs) He never showed up. (laughs) Making lemonade out of lemons, I tell you. (laughs) That is certainly something I want to hear. I doubt they're going to release it first. I think probably, if not in the next week, in the next couple weeks, we will be getting probably one of the demos. Because again, that's what they've done. You get a finished take, a Giles Martin take, you get a demo, you get something off of usually disc four, and then maybe rain or paperback writer, and then the box. Mm -hmm. Right. And you got at least two weeks of a bunch of people complaining about it. (laughs) (laughs) We're already there with Taxman. (laughs) That's right. But I think for the most part, people are pretty happy with it. That's the thing is that we have choice in this world. You know, it's not like anyone is coming along and shoving these new mixes down everyone's throat and saying, this is how you're going to hear this music from now on, bugger. You've got the old records there. (laughs) If you want to reminisce, you've you've got, you've got, you've all, you're always going to have your favorite version of your favorite Beatles album. That never changes. You know, for those of right. us who are a little more curious that want to go down that magic rabbit hole, you know, we get to. So, you know, to that, I say hallelujah. As long as we keep putting up the money. Well, especially since we're going to be able to take the Atmos mixes, the 5.1 mixes, and get really pretty good sounding stems out of them. Yeah. All roads lead to fan mixes. I think fan mixes are the thing of the future. So you can hear any song, customize it to the way that you want to listen to it. And that can change from one day to the next. One other thing, which is not completely Beatles related, but Giles mentioned that he was doing the Pet Sounds Atmos mix at the same time he was doing the Revolver mix. That's kind of amazing to me. Yeah. He could do a Pet Sounds Atmos mix. And uh, also that those two albums were being recorded in tandem. So there's a little bit of history repeating itself in a way. The infamous Brian Wilson in his one ear. (laughs) <laughs> that's right Yay. now they're turning into a full soundstage mm-hmm. they had eight tracks in LA uh, during that period but Brian was never interested in creating these stereo mixes he only had that one ear so he just wanted to hear everything in mono so he'd take everything and mix it down to that one mono track and then he'd have seven left over for all those wonderful vocal overdubs well it's the Beach Boys yep I found that just really, really interesting. I mean, and despite the fact we've had how many re-releases of Pet Sounds, we've we've had more re-releases of Pet Sounds than almost any Beatles album. <laughs> this is true. Two box sets. So assuming that this is a going to be the third box set for Pet Sounds. Oh man, I still have a fondness for the mono Pet Sounds, but that's that's just my own. What else do we have here on outtakes? Love you too. Paul singing a harmony on it. That's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. What was George's original title for that? Usually he picked some sort of an apple as, as working titles. Was this one like Laxton Superb? Granny Smith, I believe. Granny Smith, okay. I really like hearing some of the talkback that came from the control room 
uh, you know, Norman Smith. There was a story about, um, I think it was, I want to tell you, it was one, one of those songs off Revolver where uh, Norman Smith said, uh, what's, what's the name of this song? And, and George said, I don't know. I don't know. Take one. I'd hope that Giles and Sam get a little playful and let us hear some of that. Yeah, that would be nice. What's quoted here is when Mr. Martin asks, what do you call it, George? This is for I want to tell you. The others crack up and John sneers, Granny Smith part friggin' two. <laughs> Ever the diplomat, Ringo can't help dropping a hint. Tell you, that's a nice one, tell you. So it's Ringo who, who came up with the title. I want to tell you? Apparently. I mean, George was singing the line in the song. Okay. Wow. But George had no title for it. And, and Ringo says, J- just call it I want to tell you. There you go. So that's three titles that Ringo came up with mm. for those keeping uh, score at home. Yeah. <laughs> but only one that he knew that he supplied it. Two of them, he just kind of said it. He didn't realize they were titles. Right. Love You Too, Paul singing harmony reminds me of the business of trying to come up with harmonies and get back. One, two, three. I'm in love for the first time. Okay, that's that's all right. That's yes, that's, I can't hear you. Bye. No, I think it's awful. Actually. Uh, no, that doesn't quite work. No, that's right. Yeah, you know the the la la la's, mm-hmm. and I can see that being very similar. I mean, you know, we'll get the thing, and it's going to be like, no, that wasn't right at all. It's one thing we learned about Paul from the get back uh, experience is that he really wants to try a million things and, and take ideas and run them and to f- completely find out that they don't work. But he doesn't really want that from anyone else, especially George. <laughs> it's also funny that George doesn't get that the title should be I Want to Tell You because, well, he's the one who ragged on Paul about shouldn't that song be titled i've got a feeling is that is that called is that song called i've got a feeling (laughs) that's right so you know everything comes back around to get back they're definitely the same band things have changed in three years but maybe things haven't changed quite so much and some people resent that they haven't changed certainly Although George got three songs on Revolver. Yeah, that was a first. And also the first time that George got the leadoff track on an album, an actual Beatles-approved album, not like the Beatles' second album that was compiled by Dave Dexter, but an actual Beatles album. George you know, got the leadoff track, which made the statement about what the album was going to be. And then you know, he got Love You Too, which took it into a much deeper direction. And he kind of anchors that record in a lot of ways. You also have to cover the fact that uh, our version of that album was three John Lennon songs short. They weren't part of our Revolver experience. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you had I'm Only Sleeping, Dr. Robert, and, and Your Bird Can Sing that were released in advance Yes. Months in advance on um, yesterday and today. Yes. Mm. And that version of I'm Only Sleeping has different backwards guitars because they worked on them after they sent that mix off. That's right. So people in the U.S. got to hear a completely different. I think there's some four or five different 
mixes of that song floating around the world in that period. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do we get the U.S. mix of I'm Only Sleeping in the Box? I don't remember. They'd already released that as part of the uh, the 2014 Capital box set or U.S. box set or whatever they called it. So no use putting that out again. It all depends on how much space they have on the disc. Space on the disc is not a problem. They're putting in an EP. <laughs> That's right. And it only has four, four tracks on it. Rain stereo and mono and paperback writer stereo and mono. Yeah, it's the single, which wasn't part of Revolver. So. Your show business dollars at work. You think that they actually factored that in when they decided what to charge for the box? Because I'm thinking they just kind of go, what do you think? 149 They threw it on the video as you get a bonus EP. It's like, oh, okay, thank you. Although... It does look really nice in the green sleeve in the vinyl box. It's just a visual thing then. I bought the vinyl box just because it looks good and I wanted the alternate cover just like I bought the Get Back vinyl box because I wanted the alternate cover full sized. <laughs> I think I played the vinyl once or twice, but you know, I'm glad I have it. And Apple Core was betting that you would. Well, yeah. And that's why they're doing what they do. Yeah. I'm sure in that meeting, someone said, you know, if we just put these two songs on a, another disc, they're going to bitch about it. <laughs> they already knew that because nobody liked the EP in the Let It Be in the Get Back box. Well, there you go. Corporate bastards. But it's a bonus. This single is kind of like the Apple Jam. You don't have to pay for it. It's a bonus. It's a bonus. It's free. Yeah, but they're pricing it at $140. Oh, now I get it. Mm -hmm. You can't purchase these tracks a la carte. <laughs> Can I just have the box set without that EP? How much would I pay then? That's coming in. You can always get an Apple Music subscription and just listen to everything. Yeah. It's all going to be there. Mm -hmm. In addition to the Atmos 5.1 mix, which I'm really a little disappointed that they're not putting it out on Blu-ray just because, you know, I'm glad we're getting it. The streaming is really nice, but it's compressed in the stream. Mm, yeah, that's the rub. Yeah, you can hear some of the compression in, in the rears and then in the tracks which float above your head. Okay. So uh, tell us, uh, if we want to hear the Atmos mix, do we have to have Apple Music for that? Or like I have Amazon Music myself. There's something called Amazon Music HD, which I believe has the Atmos mixes. Okay. Cool. Uh, and then you need to have an appropriate pair of headphones that can handle them. You should be able to play it through your normal setup, just stream it out to your stereo. Okay. I would point out that if you accidentally have it on an Atmos mix setting and you're listening to it on a regular stereo system, it's going to sound weird. That was my first experience was I heard it in my car and I was like, this sounds terrible. There's something wrong with this. The guitars are like way too hot and there's a lot of information that's missing here and then i looked at my phone and was like oh it's atmos oh okay well what if i just switch over to hd boom there, there it go. was yeah uh amazon music unlimited with dolby atmos okay that is their version of, of the atmos great well turns out i that's exact prescription that i have so i'm gonna dig a little bit deeper into that so yeah you should be able to play them the easier way to play them is actually just to play them into your headphones if you've got a recent pair of 
AirPods. I do not. Uh, I've actually got the AirPods Max, the the over the year AirPods, and and they they sound really nice. If you're looking for a pair of noise canceling headphones, they do a good job, and you can play the Atmos mix through them. It knows where your head is positioned. It knows what front, rear, and above you actually is. Wow. There are sensors in the headphones. Okay. That's amazing. That's how it translates the information. I did not know about that. But it's getting there. Cool. If we could go back for a second, something I've been thinking about, we were talking about the origin of Yellow Submarine, who wrote what. And I feel like one of the reasons for the unclarity of it all is the fact that this was a, a... a period where John and Paul weren't writing together so much anymore. They weren't nose to nose like they were all those years on the road in hotel rooms or in vans or at each other's houses. They were off at home working on different ideas and then maybe bringing them together. So occasionally, you know, Paul would go over to John's house and have a bit of breakfast and and work on some stuff. But at this time, there was a lot of dissatisfaction that was creeping in about who was contributing to the songs. Paul was taking a much more egalitarian approach to the songwriting, letting other people contribute lines like Donovan adding to Yellow Submarine or Mal Evans adding to Here, There, and Everywhere. John didn't take that so well. Uh, It was a bit of a bone of contention with him because he considered himself Paul's exclusive songwriting partner. And he said when it came to Eleanor Rigby and and Paul sort of put the lyric sheet on the table and said, you guys finish it up, you know, sort of inviting anyone to come in and contribute, which John said that he was like hurt and insulted by. It encroached on the understanding that they had that they were a songwriting team and it was going to be the two of them. There's just a sign of the complexity in their relationship. And you feel like the seeds of the Beatles' dissolution were kind of being sown then. In spite of what a unified album revolver is, you still got these little bones of contention that are at play here. Well, I mean, you have Paul walking out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Tell us about that. What, was it? what song was that? She Said, She Said. They apparently had a big disagreement, and Paul left. George... Stepped in, played the bass. George's bass debut on a Beatles track. Yeah. Taking nine hours to record, it's possibly the only Beatles track McCartney never played on, going down as one of the Beatles' great unsolved mysteries. It's thought Paul stormed out following an argument, possibly due to being teased as the only band member who wouldn't partake in LSD. Another factor of note in She Said, She Said is Ringo Starr's drum performance. The fills beautifully executed, highlighting the raw and unique approach to playing that he truly possessed. But to your comment, Ken Womack, who is writing the Mal Evans book, which we're going to get next year, he told us that Mal actually commented on the songwriting session where Paul came in and, you know, put the lyrics on the table. And John witheringly said, we've got a failed telephone engineer and a failed accountant, and you want to ask them to help you write this song? Oh, Wow. Maybe not quite as much as the revolver box, but we're all looking forward to that book next year. Oh, yeah. That's a valid point. It's like, okay, so you're Paul McCartney, I'm John Lennon, and you're just going to let anybody come in. What I contribute isn't important enough for it to be exclusive. Yeah, but John Lennon had Pete Shotton contributing lyrics. So was that before this argument? Pete Shotton was coming in and co-writing Incognito? All the stories I've heard are when... Pete kind of moved in and like 67 
more of that era. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense because by then John was said, well, you know, we're not really a songwriting partner or then are we, according to Paul? Right. Well, Pete also contributed some of the Eleanor Rigby lyrics. Oh, I didn't know that. Again, this is Pete's claim. And Pete is no longer with us to ask, but we have to take him at his word in his book. What was the name of that book? Uh, in My Life? Yes. I believe he takes credit for the Father Mackenzie thing. Okay. Was that under a different title? Was it ever called The Beatles, Lennon, and Me? Uh, the paperback was. Okay. They retitled it for the paperback. Yeah. I have that book somewhere. I forgot about that Eleanor Rigby bit. The original, the large format, was also paperback, and it had John from uh, One to One on the cover, for those who were interested. It's actually a fairly rare book these days. The paperback or the hardback? It was never hardback. Okay. Uh, it was large format paperback, and then it was small format paperback. The small format paperback is like over 40 or 50 bucks on eBay these days. Wow. Damn. I was just thinking <laughs> I was going to go through my book collection and start selling them off. I got a couple of those. There is nice money to be made in Beatles books. I've been collecting for decades. So. Whichever ones you can decide you can live without or, or which are now outdated. Well, they're all outdated. Yeah. Lewison is going to change everything. <laughs> right. As long as we finally get the other two or three volumes. He's almost done with the research on parts two and three. That is what he said. Okay. And he's writing part two as we speak. That's right. Yes. And, and, and whenever somebody asks, he's like, it'll be done when it's done. That's all I can tell you. You can't see it until it's finished. It's a little talking heads. Like. <laughs> it's a daunting task to try to harvest all this information while the people who can actually share the stories with us are still alive. It's like trying to tell the story of World War II in a lot of ways. Yeah, I was uh, pretty amazed because I bought the initial offering of, of his first book, Tune In. And then, I don't know how long after that, he released a, a two-volume set. The author's edition. And that was just amazing. So I'm thinking to live up to what he's already done. And now we're getting into the really crazy years. So The years that everyone wants to hear about. Everyone. Well, and the fact that he's traveled the world and he's read almost every newspaper from every country around the globe. He's just writing it off on his taxes. And he's still not making enough money to live off of, so he has to do stage shows. My name is Mark Lewison, and I'm the author of a book called Tune In, which is the first volume of a three-book history called The Beatles All These Years. And volume two, for those who are waiting, is very much in the works. It is coming. However, for a very short time in October this year, 2022, I'm going to be doing The Beatles history in a different way. Instead of having it on the page, I'm going to do it on the stage in a talk called 62. 62 stories about the Beatles in the year 1962, which was their great breakthrough year, the year when they have their first record out, when it all begins to take off. Remarkable young men, great stories, incredible coincidences, laugh out loud moments, drama, death, it's all in this story. And I'm gonna be using my archive in a way that it's never been used to illuminate and make you see just how incredible those events were. So come along to the theatre, the Bloomsbury Theatre in London this October and see 62. Incredible. You can't go out and do those for free. Those tours cost money. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, as you know. Yeah. I'm hoping he's got some good sponsorship for that. He's got people who are paying him in addition to whatever he gets from the box office. Good. And they do sell out. So yeah, I think there's no one more deserving because there's no one who's, who's worked as hard and with, with as little ego at being an, an authority on their story and really getting it right. You know, telling their story and not projecting any of their own personality onto it. He's really pure like that. Yeah. And he recognizes that so much of what he learns can be verified through paperwork. He's a big advocate of finding the paperwork to tell the story. Mark Lewison has the receipts. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he's promised us that uh, as we get closer to volume two, he will come on this show. Oh, that's fantastic. Score! Yeah, that would be fun. I spoke with him uh, just a few weeks back at the fest in Chicago, and I asked him, and he said, well, not now, not while I'm writing, but as we get closer, yes. Wow. That will be cool. That's quite a feather in the cap. <laughs> All right. Any last thoughts on Revolver here? Yes. One is, you remember on the, the releases, I think, of Real Love, there was a version of Yellow Submarine that had an intro. Yellow Submarine. And we will march till three the day to see them gathered there. From Lander Groats to John O'Green, with Stepney do we tread. To see us Yellow Submarine. We love it. We love it in the town where I was born. I always felt like, what the hell? It doesn't even fit. It's basically traveling the length of... Great Britain, I I believe. A mere 20-odd miles to go, and the amazing Dr. Babs would reach her goal, Land's End. 1,028 miles spread over 23 days. And all done on salad, grapefruit, cream, bananas, fruit juices, honey, and that great drink, hot water. Dr. Barbara set out to prove that that's the diet if you want to be healthy and energetic, as undoubtedly she must be. But what's John O'Groats to Land's End? Just a stroll to Barbara. The track that you're talking about, John, it kind of fades up. I wouldn't mind hearing the, the thing in its entirety just to hear it, just to, to see what kind of mindset they were in. I'm not even sure how the concept fit going into Yellow Submarine. I do know that there was some sort of a, 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 a prologue of sorts that I, that I read somewhere. There was like a, almost like a poem that had, had led up and it had something about in a yellow submarine and no one has ever heard it. Well, I guess we'll find out if, yeah. if we're going to hear or see anything like that. And I can't remember even where it was where I, I read something like that. In the end, as as Ringo said, in the end, we just said, I'll sort it. Let's just do tracks. <laughs> <laughs> My final comments here. The book also looks tremendous. You know, we've got an introduction by Paul. Well, we know what that's going to be like. But there's an essay by Questlove. That's a real interesting choice. Questlove is the musical zeitgeist right now. He's the guy that everyone looks to for opinions on music past and present. And rightfully so. I mean, the guy's got an enormous wealth of knowledge and experience and skills and great taste. And uh, he's an Oscar-winning filmmaker. So I'll take the Questlove. But apparently he didn't really listen to the Beatles until they started being sampled in the stuff he was listening to. And then it's like, well, that's really cool. And that then took him back. Yeah, I think he references the fact that he feels like some aspects of Taxman are kind of really early rap. Not rapping, but the relationship between the drums and the bass. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, that does make sense because, you know, so much of rap or at least the backing tracks that people rapped over came from old soul music. And, you know, McCartney especially was into emulating the sound and the vibe from old soul music. He was listening to a lot of stacks and a lot of Motown and, and marveling at, at how well the bass was not just recorded, but performed. So when he got his Rickenbacker bass, he was much more inclined to go after the James Jamerson feel, get a little bit more busy, get more locked in with, with the bass and work more closely with Ringo on being in a soulful rhythm section. Right. Well, and the technology which was coming up then, what they invented for recording, which is why it's only justified that, well, they're still moving the ball forward in 2022. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So that's it for now. We should mention the new Julian Lennon album is out. Uh, We'll talk about that next week. John? Sounds good. Always great talking with you, Darren. Oh, always great talking with you guys. And we'll be back next week with a new show. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Right.
more than music. You know, they were just the cultural touchstone of the generation. And um, <clears throat> a lot of that is, you know, is sort of exposed in the music. The the weird sort of uh, she said, she said, and tomorrow never knows of John is obviously reflecting his drug experiences. And um, Paul McCartney is becoming a much more uh, seasoned lyricist and um, an arranger in ways. So it's, uh, for us at least, it's something of a challenge because of the great variety of what's going on. But at the same time, we all have such, you know, respect for the genius that went into it, you know, and we all recall the effects that those records had on us when we first heard them. And that's something that's, uh, I think, fueling us in any case. You know, I think the audience, if they lived through that period, you know, they, they may be experiencing the same thing. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Yeah. 